Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just describe one serial killer. I talk about several serial killers and something they have in common. In honor of Halloween, I'm doing vampire serial killers. And we'll get into what that entails in just a moment. I'm still doing the Families That Murder Together series, but I wanted to take a little break, as I stated, in honor of Halloween, and do something a little more appropriate for the holiday. So after this week, I will continue with Families That Murder Together. We'll have Brothers That Murdered Together, Sisters That Murdered Together, and some other same on and so forth and yada yada yada. So, vampirism. I will quote Harold Schechter from The Serial Killer Files. In the realm of abnormal psychology, vampirism refers to a perversion or paraphilia in which people derive intense sexual pleasure from the drinking of human blood. It should be stressed that, as repellent as such practice might seem to most people, not all, or even most, real-life vampires are criminal psychopaths. Indeed, nowadays, when even the most ultra-sexual activities have their advocates, there are socially responsible websites like Sanguinarius.org, which advise vampirically inclined individuals on medial precautions, legal matters, and etiquette. So, I will be covering serial killers who fit the... Well, alright. I'm going to cover some that fit the drinking human blood. Now, I don't know about necessarily the sexual pleasure. It depends on the serial killer. But we will get into that. This is um, not an exhaustive list of every serial killer that has drank blood. But there are some of them. There are also some that were called vampire killers, but they didn't necessarily drink blood, which you shall see. So that just means that there will be another episode with more vampire serial killers to come. We'll start with the obvious Vlad Tepes. Vlad III, from 15th century Romania. His nobleman dad was called Dracul, which meant dragon, because he was in a crusading Catholic order of chivalry with that title. Vlad III called himself Draculia, son of Dracul. So that's where we get Dracula. He was taught to fight early because his dad saw Turkey, Hungary, Germany, and Poland as enemies wanting to take his stuff. And indeed, they did take his stuff, being two of his sons, including Vlad. Vlad and Radu. And I can't help it, every time I he hear Radu, I think of subspecies. Because he's Radu the Vampire. And if you don't know what that is, you should probably check it out, because it is fun. It is a Full Moon Productions movie. Actually, it's, I believe there are four movies. They are actually surprisingly, the first one especially, is surprisingly well done. Some of the shots are pretty cool. And it's just a fun little adventure to go on. Anyway, back to Vlad. He was taken hostage by Turkey from 1442 to 1448 and was released when his dad was assassinated. Later, it is said that the people who conspired to kill his dad, he impaled them or had them walk 50 miles. In another account, it's said that those people were invited to a banquet and then they were burned alive in the dining hall. There's also a story where he invited the poor of the town to the feast, to a feast, and said, hey, do you never want to be poor again? And of course they're like, fuck no! I don't know if they thought he was going to give them money or set them up, but he set the hall on fire. So they'll never be poor again because they are deed. 
So I think it's interesting. You have one story where he invites the assassins to a banquet and burns it down. Another story where he invites the poor to a banquet and burns it down. So that tells me either it's the same story that was just the details were fudged up. So he invited someone to a hall and burned it down. Or he just liked to do it. Maybe that was his thing. So that's why there's two stories, because he enjoyed inviting people to eat and then making them flambéed. He felt violence was a path to power and actually showed religious superiority, which is an interesting twist. Instead of thinking of being a nonviolent religious person where, you know, you shouldn't hurt your neighbor, he thought, well, you know what? It shows God's on my side if I'm killing the bitches. So instead of feeling that since he's religious, he should do unto others and he should love his neighbor, he felt that it actually showed his might that God's on his side when he could crush people who were against his God or who didn't fall into the line with his thinking and such. It is said that he drank their blood. He also had a uniform with a black cloak over a red robe. So those are ways in which we can see how those became, became the legend of Dracula. He apparently led a campaign against Turks that killed 38,000 people. When they refused to remove their turbans, he had them nailed to their heads. When the Turks advanced, he burned down his own villages and poisoned the wells so they wouldn't have resources. He impaled 20,000 Turkish captives, which became known as the Forest of the Impaled. The Turkish Sultan gave in. Now, I know that I've heard a story where someone, where he had some people over for dinner. He didn't light them on fire, but I guess it was at least one guy where he wouldn't take his hat off and it was considered disrespectful. So he nailed the, he the hat to the guy's head. So again, I don't know if these are just twistings of the same story or if he just really liked to nail things to hats to people's heads. As you probably already know, he was known for impaling. He didn't want the steak too sharp. He wanted it to take longer. Apparently it was a greased pole and he would insert it or have someone insert it through the person's mouth, anus, heart, or navel. He might, at the same time, also blind, burn, or scalp the person. Supposedly he ate dinner while he had thousands of Saxons impaled around him. So therefore, he was known as Vlad the Impaler. If he didn't want the steak too sharp because it would take longer, I wouldn't, I don't see why he would grease the pole. Maybe it was easier to get it started with a greased pole, but you would think that they would slide down faster on a greased pole. So I question the legitimacy of the greased pole, but I'm unsure. Some of the other accusations against Vlad is that if a woman committed adultery, he would skin her alive and carve out her genitalia. He was supposed to have seen a peasant woman who made her husband's shirt too short. So, as you would do, he had a red hot poker thrust up her vagina and out through her mouth. And then he gave the widow a new wife. I bet Freud would have a fucking field day with Vlad and his impaling and poker thrusting. And, and according to a pamphlet about Vlad... He also, quote, roasted children of mothers and they had to eat their children themselves. My first thought is, do you have to qualify children of mothers? Because children have to have a mother, whether the mother stuck around or not is another matter. So I love how they really, they couldn't just say children because just saying children, they roasted children. That sounds terrible. But when you remind 
the audience of mothers, then it, it's that extra punch. They roasted children of mothers. So they had mothers that had these children that they lost. Well, and then, of course, they had to then eat their own children and they were mothers no longer. But that was according to a pamphlet made by the German enemies. So they certainly would have had a reason to exaggerate things that Vlad had or had not done. So that's probably not true. I know you'll be surprised, but Vlad III wound up assassinated. It is claimed that his horse's bones are in his tomb, and no one knows where his body is. Some historians say the claims are exaggerated, and he was a great defender of his homeland. That you need to remember his actions must be placed in a historical context. So the things that he did actually weren't as bad as they seem to us, because in our current historical context... They seem way out of place. But in that historical context, maybe some of the things he did really wasn't that bad because it was something that was done by everybody. Or maybe not to that extent because obviously he did some shit if history builds him up to this much of a bad dude. So I figured there has to be some something that he did that was beyond what would be acceptable in a historical context. Because otherwise, no one would fucking know who he was. Or it could be that he was such a big figure that he could be divisive. And therefore, the enemies build up the stories. And maybe even some of the fans build up the stories. Like, yeah, he impaled the fuck out of that dude. He's badass. That is the gist of Vlad. I shall move on to another historical figure that I'm sure you have heard of. Elizabeth Bathory. She's a distant relative of old Vladdy boy. She's from Hungary, the Carpathian Mountains in the 16th century. I'm sure your ears perked when you heard Carpathian, because in Ghostbusters 2, Vigo was Vigo the Carpathian. Elizabeth was a countess with vain beauty. She liked to torture her servants to discipline them. For example, she may burn their hand for trying to steal. If they were ironing and the clothes were still too wrinkly, she would put the iron to their face. But, speaking of historical context, apparently it was not uncommon for people to torture their servants. But again, I'm wondering if we know her name, but not the other people's names, she must have taken it to another level. Whether it's the level that I'm going to speak of here momentarily is another thing, but there may be some truth to it. Her husband was a soldier and was away a lot. Some say she got bored and learned of witchcraft. There is another account where when she was a teen, her family supposedly showed her torture, devil worship, and sexual perversion. So whether she got bored earlier and decided to learn stuff on her own, or whether she was raised in it, I guess basically she wound up being a pretty mean bitch. Her husband died, and she was worried that her good looks were going. She was about 40 and had a couple kids. The story goes, she slapped the face of a servant girl and drew blood. She thought the blood made the skin look fresher and younger. So, as you would, she thought, well, I should probably bathe in blood, maybe drink it, and that will be my fountain of youth. She's said to have killed 650 or more virgin girls over 30 years to bathe in their blood. How did she do it? It is said she took a spike-filled cylindrical cage put the virgin inside. The cage was lifted by the servants. The virgin was jabbed with a burning poker, and when she jumped back, she was impaled on the spikes. 
Elizabeth Bathory sat under the cage and let the blood pour over her. Or she put it in the tub and just laid in the tub. Either way, supposedly she liked to rip the flesh off her victims with custom-made pinchers. She also used whips, scissors, needles, branding irons, and her own teeth. Now, I guess all was fine and dandy until she began killing lower nobility. And I guess just started throwing the bodies everywhere. Like, I don't care. I don't know. Toss it there. Put it there. They'd drive in a carriage and just toss it someplace. And and then uh, she started running out of people around her. So then she would send people to go to nearby villages, which was costly. And eventually she was run out of money. And it was brought to the notice of people. And she ended up on trial and sealed in her castle chambers. Now, I read one account where she supposedly started a finishing school for 25 girls at a time, so she would teach them manners and such. And when she was done with them, she threw their corpses over the castle walls. People saw that, (laughs) as they might, and then they were like, you can't keep doing this. So there was a trial, and she, on the trial, it said that she'd cut off parts of the victim's bodies and make them eat it. And regardless of whether that's true or not, she had to stay in her castle room. And she died four years later. She was known as the Blood Countess. On to more modern vampire killers. So Richard Chase was known as the Vampire of Sacramento. He was born in 1950. He claimed six victims from December 1977 to January 1978. He had no problems in middle and high school except impotence. Apparently, he read, erections were from becoming engorged with blood, so he thought drinking blood would help, and he tried kitten and dog blood. I didn't see anything where he was successful with that, so that's probably why it hasn't become a common cure for erectile dysfunction. Don't try this at home. He tortured and killed birds, dogs, cats, and rabbits, and experimented drinking their blood. He would gorge on their intestines. He believed their blood would prevent his blood from becoming dust. Sometimes he would blend the blood and entrails together. Santeria smoothie. He was twice in a psychiatric hospital. Some of his claims included. He said someone had stolen his pulmonary artery and it was causing cardiac arrest. Also, his heart and kidneys were not working because the blood wasn't flowing. His stomach was turned around the wrong way. His heart often stopped. He had a hernia, and his body was numb. Is anyone else thinking of uh, Bob from What About Bob? Dead hands. Fingernail sensitivity. The doctors found nothing wrong, except that he had chronic paranoid schizophrenia. While he was in the hospital, he was obsessed with blood, mostly animal blood, so the people around the hospital would call him Dracula. They thought he was harmless, because he only ever spoke of animal blood. In the last podcast on the left book, last book on the left, they point out that he had signs of Cotard's syndrome, which can include you think you're a walking corpse, you're alive but rotting from the inside, or you're missing essential pieces of anatomy like blood or organs. So I think we can all agree he was probably suffering from that. It's also mentioned that in that book as well as in the book Cannibal Killers, that hematodipsia and Renfield syndrome have three stages, self-consumption, zoophagia, or animal consumption, and then other people. Of course, Renfield is from Bram Stoker's book, Dracula. 
So again, we see the ties to Dracula and Vlad. And Renfield in the book, if you're not familiar or you don't remember, he liked to take lives of flies and bugs. And so that is why it's named Thusly. Although now that I think about it, he didn't really mention... I don't recall seeing mentions that he actually started by sucking his own blood. But maybe he didn't. It just wasn't in any of the sources that I tended to look at. And we will see where it ex escalates into other people momentarily. At one point, he thought his mother was trying to poison him, so he moved in with his dad, and unbeknownst to daddy, he started buying rabbits and killing them, and then drinking their blood. He became sick from eating a rabbit that had eaten battery acid, but he wound up being okay. In 1977, cops found him naked in a Nevada desert, covered in blood. They found a bucket of blood in his car, and two rifles used to stir it. It winds up it was cow blood, and he was released. So he moved up from birds and cats and dogs to cows. And I'm sure you made the association where he saw blood and thought that it would cure him or help him in some physical way. And so apparently he was covered in the blood, which is similar to Elizabeth Bathory. December of 1977, he bought a pistol and shot a stranger on the street. Apparently, 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin was carrying groceries from his car and Chase just decided to shoot him. Chase said that the first person he killed was an accident, and I quote, My car was broken down. I wanted to leave, but I had no transmission. I had to get an apartment. Mother wouldn't let me in at Christmas. Always before she let me come at Christmas, have dinner, and talk to her, my grandmother, and my sister. But that year she wouldn't let me in, so I shot from the car and killed somebody. So I'm not sure if his car was broken down and he shot from the car. Was he just sitting in a dead car and shot somebody and then, like, ducked down? Or waited a second and ran off? Was he in someone else's car? I don't know. January 23rd, 1978, he burgled a house and then went to another home, the home of Teresa Wallen, who was 22 years old. He shot her three times, possibly four, took her to her bedroom, and according to a pathologist that saw the scene later, Chase took out the intestines, displaced the kidneys, and explored the innards. One source said he cut the chest to the navel, body organs were taken out and cut, external body parts were missing, and she was stabbed in the left breast several times. There was also animal feces in her mouth. Her underclothes were pulled down to her ankles, but there was no sexual assault. They did find a yogurt container with blood ringlet stains on the floor near it. So he had taken an empty yogurt container and drank her blood with it. He said he also smeared his face with her blood. They found out that she was three months pregnant. So now we see the escalation from killing small animals to killing cows to now shooting at someone, which is interesting because that's not quite as close up an act as stabbing and drinking blood. Shooting is more, I mean, obviously it's still killing, but it's still a more distant association killing. But you can also see in a way where it might be difficult to go straight from stabbing an animal to stabbing a human. First, he had to get up the courage to break down that wall. So shoot a person. And apparently he said it was an accident that he killed them. But still, he, he shot at someone. He knew that he was, he shot, you know. So whether they were going to die or not, that was an, an act with intent. He was intending to at least harm them. I mean, he knew Something was probably going to happen unless he thought he'd missed them because he wasn't a good shot. But regardless, 
shortly after, he wound up actually, well, he did shoot her. So, but this time he was close up and he shot her close up and then he dissected her and took out her innards and things. There was still the act of he didn't kill her by stabbing her. He killed her by shooting her and then he did the stabbing. A few days later, he broke into a house less than a mile from Teresa Wallen's house, owned by 36 or 38-year-old Evelyn Broth. At home was her son Jason, who was six, and either it's a boyfriend or a visiting male friend, 52-year-old Daniel Meredith. Evelyn, and I quote from one source, he had carefully gouged out by severing the muscles around the eyeball, and a butcher's knife and a carving knife lay bloody at her side. The same organs were cut out as they were from Teresa Wallen. She had two cross cuts on the abdomen. Her body was covered in stab wounds, some in the face and anal area. She had been sodomized and seminal fluid was found in her anus. Her mouth was also stuffed with animal feces. There were rings on the carpet made by human blood in a bucket or pan. Now they didn't find the bucket or pan, but you could see those rings. And since they knew the other woman, there was a yogurt container that you could tell had blood in it. They made the connection. Well, this is obviously the same killer and they probably took blood with them to drink it. The bathtub had bloody water with brain and fecal matter. Her son, Jason, lay on the other side of her bed and he had been shot in the head. Daniel lay in the living room floor with a bullet in his head. Her nephew, now in most accounts it's nephew, and some it's the friend's baby. At any rate, the 22-month-old baby was gone. But there was a bullet hole in the bloody pillow and a shell casing in his playpen. Chase later said that he shot the baby because it was screaming. He drank the blood at home and then put the baby in the garbage. But the cops found the baby two months later in a box in a vacant lot. The body had been decapitated and stabbed. The skull had been opened and the brain removed. Apparently what happened is Evelyn was in the tub when she was shot. He dragged her body to the bedroom and then Dan showed up and he was shot. Then the baby cried, so he shot the baby. He was about to mutilate the baby there, but someone came to the door, so he ran away with the baby. Only Dan's wallet and car were taken. They were found abandoned a short distance later. He had left footprints and fingerprints at the crime scenes. So the cops started canvassing the area, speaking to different people in the areas of the victims. And a neighbor was suspicious of Chase, talked to the cops. It turns out he lived less than a mile away from an abandoned car. Someone that they spoke to was actually a former high school friend of theirs or, or classmate of, of his. And she had run into him not too long before that, and he looked terrible. She barely even recognized him. He looked thin and gross and was weird. So apparently he was being real weird. So she was like, okay, that's nice to see you. I gotta go. And then he tried to get in her car. So she pulls out and she just thought that was like really weird. So she happened to talk to the cops and say, you know, so that just kind of added to it. So when they went to confront Chase, he ran and was arrested because he had a 22 handgun that was used in the murders and he had Daniel's wallet. He also had a box with blood-soaked rags. In his car, they found a 12-inch butcher knife and a blood bloody rubber boots in a locked box. I don't know 100% how accurate all of the things I'm about to say next are, but I am, would think that even if all of the details aren't true, there's enough that it at least paints a picture of what most likely his place looked like. His apartment had some bloody clothing, bloody blenders, and dishes in the fridge with human body parts. One source said it had animal parts. There was a container of brain tissue in the fridge. There were numerous cat and dog collars matching missing pets from the area. There were traces of body tissue, human body tissue. Blood covered everything. There were pics of the human anatomy, medical books about internal organs. 
The drains had blood and tissue that were human brain matter. Bits of bone were around the kitchen. There was a collection of news articles about his murders. A calendar was marked today on dates of two previous killings and then the same word on 44 different days. So that seems that he was planning on killing 44 more times on specific days. There was a notebook with handwritten notes and drawings of guns, obscene images, and swastikas. When he was arrested, he kept denying it, but he told his cellmate, quote, I don't remember how I drank the blood. I just sucked it. So that's interesting because we know that he drank things out of cartons. So I'm not sure which victims he actually sucked the blood from. Maybe he's saying it to seem more badass. Maybe he did both things. Maybe he drank it from them and then also drank it from the buckets and the yogurt cup. Or maybe truly at that moment, he didn't remember what he did. He was Judge Sane. The judge felt that though Chase had felt the blood would help him, he knew that killing was wrong. Chase did finally admit what he had done. And he would say that when he tried to enter a house, if the door was locked, he took it as a sign he wasn't welcome. Unlocked doors or windows was an invitation to come inside. So I don't know if that was a conscious thought, how similar that was to vampires that you have to be invited in, or it could be just um, a subconscious thought, or it could be a coincidence. At any rate, it is pretty interesting. He was tried January 1979. May 8th, he was found guilty. His death sentence was gas chamber. He was convicted of six murders. He said in prison that his blood was turning into powder because he found a gooey substance under the soap dish and that Nazis with ties to UFOs were following him and somebody was trying to poison him. Which, if he was a paranoid schizophrenic, it is likely that he would have thought those things. I'm sure that you've had some experience or you have heard stories where um, schizophrenic people do have a paranoia and they legitimately think that people are out to get them. So it sounds goofy to us that Nazis with ties to UFOs were following him or that somebody's trying to poison him. But the paranoia can get so out of hand in their brains that that doesn't seem unlikely to them because their paranoia, the schizophrenia is so thick, I guess would be the word. It's so inundated in their systems. So it is possible that he thought those things. Especially, I don't know if they had, well, they actually, we knew he was on pills. I was going to say, I'm not sure if he was, how medicated he was, but he was medicated because he never made it to the gas chamber. He committed suicide by hoarding his pills that he was supposed to be taking. So he committed suicide and died on December 26th, 1980. Now on to Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, the Dusseldorf vampire, or the monster of Dusseldorf. He was born in 1883. He did his killings between 1913 and 1930. He had 10 victims and 31 or so that he attempted to kill. His dad raped Peter's sister, and he did too. The local dog and rat catcher let him watch him kill the animals and commit sexual acts on them. At 13, he would have sex with sheep, pigs, and goats. And when he stabbed the sheep to death during sex, it gave him the best climax. He tore swan's heads off and drank their blood. He attacked a girl, left her for dead, and she lived. He attacked a girl and tried to strangle her. And then he was arrested and went to prison. He was also an arsonist. In 1913, he broke into a tavern and raped a girl... Christine Klein. It was the daughter of the innkeeper. She was uh, between 10 or 13 years old. He strangled her, cut her throat, and in one account it says he penetrated her vagina with his fingers. 
As you often hear about serial killers, he did not seem like one. He was apparently charming, smartly groomed, well-spoken, had good manners. So therefore, it was easy for him to persuade people to walk in the park with him or meet him alone. He did get married, and in some accounts, he got married because he said that he would kill her if she didn't marry him. So that's a convincing engagement proposal. We've seen so far, Vlad apparently just killed whomever pissed him off or was in the way. Supposedly, he killed women and men, and possibly children. Elizabeth Bathory only killed young virgins. Traditionally, serial killers will kill only men or only women or only children. And if they kill children, it usually tends to be of one gender or the other. That's one of the ways that it's a little easier, at least, to understand a pattern with serial killers, even if it doesn't lead to catching them immediately or even catching them at all. Now, you do have some that break the mold of that. For example, Peter Curtin. He killed men, women, and children. He would stab and mutilate in frenzied attacks, and sometimes he'd throw their bodies in the river. He varied the style of his attacks to confuse them, which is very interesting because at this point, this was in 1913, so it's not like people knew about serial killers and they were publishing things and like there were true crime TV shows and podcasts and, you know, so he wouldn't have thought, oh, well, this is what they're looking for because other people wouldn't have said and advertised, this is what we look for. Because it had, there weren't really serial killers that were well-known around that period of time. I mean, really just Jack the Ripper, H.H. H. Holmes, maybe. So, um, so this is just how premeditated and intelligent he was that he knew he could just figure out, well, it makes sense that if they keep finding bodies where this happens to them, they're going to tie them together and that should probably, that might lead to me. So he understood, well, they may keep finding people dead, but if I change the way I do it, they may just think there's multiple people doing it and it, may, it might be harder to find me. So he would sometimes stab them, sometimes he'd strangle them, and sometimes he'd bludgeon them. Occasionally he would return to the graves and dig them up and would caress them. In 1928, he had four attempted stranglings and arson attempts. 1928, he stabbed a woman 24 times and she lived. He stabbed a mechanic 20 times and left him for dead. March 9th, eight-year-old Rose Oliger was found raped, stabbed 13 times, and the corpse, they had tried to burn the corpse. Several of the victims had stab wounds in the temples, but since there were women, men, and children, it, the cops ruled out a pattern. So therefore, Peter had thought correctly. There were three more attempts. One a man, he stabbed and ran away, but he lived. August 24th, there were two kids, Gertrude Hamaker, five-year-old Gertrude and Louise Lenzen, 14-year-old. They were found dead near their home. They were strangled with their throats cut. He apparently had, did drink some of Louise's blood. Gertrude Schultz was stabbed, but lived. Three more stranglings were attempted and lived. Ida Reeder, her skull was crushed with a hammer. Elizabeth Deary's was killed with a hammer. Two more women were bludgeoned and lived. So just imagine, I'm going to pause because there's more, of course. Someone around your town is running around stabbing people and bludgeoning them with hammers. I can't even imagine how insane that would be and how scary that would be, especially since there's not a certain demographic that it's, it's not like, oh, well, I'm a man, so I'm safe or... I'm a five-year-old girl, so I'm safe, or anything. It's anyone could be stabbed and killed, or bludgeoned and killed, or maybe live. You could get stabbed 20 times and live. It's fucking terrifying. To think of it from his side, my first thought is, 
He's stabbing them, he's strangling them, he's bludgeoning them, and they're living. So I would tend to think that he would feel like a failure. Like, well, fuck, I just tried to kill 10 people and all of them lived. But what I think probably happened is he just gets in a frenzy and he's like, gotta kill, gotta kill, gotta kill. So he goes and attacks and he's like, blah, you know, he's got it out of the system and he runs away. So, so he got what he needed because it seems like from this behavior, the desire doesn't come from feeling them die and from knowing they're dead. It is from the attack and hence the stabbing so many times. And, and the, I would say, but I think that it makes sense that maybe the equivalent of stabbing someone a whole bunch of times is bashing them in the head. So maybe it's a, it's a different way, but maybe a similar level. I wonder if he even enjoyed doing it the different ways that he must have because some, some serial killers seem to have a compulsion like, I know that this is going to be a problem for me, but I'm going to keep doing it. So some, that's how, that's why they drink, like Dahmer. That's why they would drink because they knew their behavior wasn't smart, but they felt uh, a compulsion to do it. So I wonder if Peter Curtin thought, okay, well, it's wise to change up my method of killing, but I wonder if, if he also enjoyed it and that's why he stuck with it because he could have said, well, this is a smart thing to do. Instead of strangling, I'm going to start stabbing. But then maybe he tried stabbing and it didn't do it for him. So then he would have to go back to the strangling. So I think it just speaks to he just wanted to hurt. So I think the ultimate thing was he wanted to hurt. He wanted to get that energy out. And so he, the energy would build. He would attack someone, whoever happened to be near, and then he would run off. And whether they died or not was inconsequential. And it just shows how confident he was that he left that many people and didn't know that they had died. So just think of that. I mean, literally, he did, he would do three more attempts and then he would be successful. Then he'd do three more attempts and then then two more attempts where he wasn't successful and then he'd be successful. So he's literally just going in like in spurts and, and trying to kill people, but then they're not dying. And he, he obviously wasn't worried because he kept doing it. So he had this level of confidence where he's like, well, I'm changing my patterns. And even if all the, the victims aren't dying, they're not recognizing him, apparently. That's the other crazy thing is he apparently did it in such a way that people weren't seeing him well or else, you know, his description would have been out there. And from all, everything that I've read and seen, they d didn't know who it was. So to continue, there was another five-year-old Gertrude Alberman stabbed 36 times. At this point, he sent a letter to the cops where to find her. So this is interesting, too, where apparently she wasn't being found fast enough. So he sent a letter to the cops like, hey, you need to go there because I, that might have also been another piece of it for him was that them finding he actually did after that first victim where he broke into the inn and killed a little girl. The next morning, he sat in the cafe across the street and watched the cops coming and going from the premises enjoying that they knew what he had done. So I think that's an element. Also, he was a fan of Jack the Ripper. And Jack the Ripper, I'm sure you know of the Saucy Jack letter or letters. So that could be a thing too, is well, Jack sent a note to the cops. So I'm going to, well, I think they sent it to the newspaper. Anyway, he sent a note. So I'm going to send a note. So it could have been him also emulating Jack the Ripper. In that letter, he also told them where to find Maria Hahn, who had stabbed to death 20 times and had raped after death. His last attempt is the one that got him caught. 22-year-old Maria Budlick on May 14th in 1930. It seems as though he saw her being harassed by a man that was trying to get her to go away with him or, you know, go someplace else with him. Well, she knew that there was someone, a killer on the loose, so she was nervous about it and she was having trouble shaking the man off. So Peter Curtin comes up and saves her and is like, don't worry, I've got you. Come with me. I'll take care of you. <sighs> so she goes and has coffee at his house 
He says he'll walk her home, but then he leads her into the woods. He starts to strangle her and try to rape her, but then he stops and asks if she remembers where he lives. So again, even in his frenzy to kill, maybe he had levels of frenzy. Maybe he had some levels where he just let it go and stabbed 36 times. And maybe there's some where he was, he didn't have quite as much of a frenzy. I don't know. Or maybe he was always calm and collected the whole time and was able to still have a frenzied attitude with still being collected, if that, if that makes sense. He stops and asks her, oh, shit, I just thought, it's like he just thought about it. Oh, I took her to my house. What the fuck? So smartly, she said, oh, no, I don't remember at all. So he let her go. Apparently, she did not go straight to the cops. She told, wrote a letter to a friend and explained and said what happened. The address was wrong and it went to the dead letters section of the post office. And when the post office looked at it, they saw what it contained and they sent it to the police. So the, the police went and found Maria and she was like, well, yeah, I remember where he lives. So she leads them right to him. He knew the cops were coming, so he told his wife what ha what he had done, and incredibly, he told her he wanted her to turn him in so she could get the money. So it's always interesting when you see people who do such horrible things have moments that seem like they have empathy, and it's that it could be compartmentalization where there are some serial killers that had wives that they seem to appreciate if maybe it wasn't the same way that we might appreciate non-sociopaths or psychopaths might appreciate them. So it is possible that he did have, he did want her to be taken care of because he, as far as we know, other than maybe threatening her to marry him, he apparently, since she wanted her to turn him in, he did have that element of it. And maybe, I mean, there could be other reasons why that happened that we will never know or understand. But I think that that, that does, it is an interesting act. He was arrested May 24th, 1930. His trial was 1931. He confessed to 68 crimes. He pled guilty to nine of the murders and seven attacks. He admitted drinking blood from cut throats, hands, and other wounds of males and females. He had dreams of sex and death. He did an article with Carl Berg, and he wrote a book about it called The Sadist. It was also divulged that sometimes Curtin would seek out pain and that he would provoke the victims to strike him, and that would indicate a masochistic component to his arousal. He also went back to where he had violated certain victims... He once witnessed a man fall under a train and pretended to help just to get near the blood, which produced an orgasm. So he was obsessed with the blood and Jack the Ripper. He wanted to be in the Chamber of Horrors waxworks. He wanted to have one of his, a figure of him in this waxwork. I'll explain why that's interesting later. When he found out he'd be going to the guillotine, he asked, quote, After my head has been chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. He died July 2nd, 1931. His brain was analyzed and there was no abnormality. Our next serial killer is Marcella Costa de Andrade, the vampire of Nitroi or the Brazilian Dahmer. He was born January 2nd, 1967 in Brazil. He killed 14 and attempted one. He killed April through December of 1991. He was apprehended December 18th, 1991. He was born into poverty. He was beaten and he was a prostitute by 14. To give you important detail, in this area that was so impoverished, there were often child deaths in the area, whether it was from, you know, starvation 
Um, they also, there were drug barons around that would use children as soldiers. So they would die that way. There were also extermination squads where off-duty cops were paid to get rid of the street, ur street urchins. So you can see why it would be easy for someone to be plucking children out of this area without any questions from anyone or without any real searching from the cops. He tried to rape his own brother at one point. He wound up beginning to kill boys. Before attacking, he would stalk some of his victims for an unknown amount of time because they reminded him of himself as a child. His victims were lower class boys aged 6 to 13 because that's when the boys were beautiful and had soft skin. He would then lure the boys into non-populated areas such as beaches, hills, or sewer tunnels. There he would rape and strangle them, mostly with their own t-shirts. He would smash their heads with rocks to drink the blood coming out of it, thinking he would become beautiful like them. So again, we see the Elizabeth Bathory idea. But in one source that I read, apparently he only really drank the blood twice. So he may not be the true vampire killer that we would think. But the point, he did it a couple of times. That's still... And he was called the Vampire of Detroit. So he still fits in the category. After killing them, he would take their clothing as trophies and sometimes engage in acts of cannibalism and necrophilia with the bodies. He would also return to the crime scenes and bring food with him in order to feed his victim's spirits. At one point, one of the boys escaped. He was caught and he confessed to 14 murders. When asked why he chose kids, one of the reasons, other than the ones stated earlier, is that he said kids ha these kids had bad lives, so he was helping them. And if they died, if they were under 13 years old, they'd go straight to heaven. Now, apparently he wasn't super religious, so that's unlikely. That's probably just something he said to make people feel better about it or that he thought he could tell people that it would make sense to them. Or maybe, you know, sometimes we can believe, especially, you know, sociopaths or psychopaths can believe conflicting things and it not feel conflicting. We have their own, you know, we have our own internal reasons for why they maybe make sense to us. So it's possible that he did think that. He actually even said that uh, he cut off a boy's head once so he'd be made fun of in heaven. So there's that. He was declared insane, and he was put into a psychiatric hospital indefinitely. Now, the next one isn't truly a serial killer, as far as we know, but I wanted to mention him because it's possible that he could have killed. So we'll throw him in there. John Brennan Crutchley is known as the Vampire Rapist. 1985, the South Brevard computer expert had a high security clearance at the Pentagon Pentagon and was thought to be related to the abduction of a 19-year-old. She was found naked and handcuffed wandering by a roadway. She had lost a lot of blood from him draining it into a jar and drinking it, telling her, I'm taking your blood out. I'm a vampire. She was kept for 22 hours while he raped and drained her blood. The FBI looked into his connection to five missing women and four skeletal remains found near his home. He was a convicted kidnapper and rapist who was suspected of murdering more than 30 women, but was never tried nor convicted of those crimes. So it's possible that he could be a serial killer and we just don't have the evidence yet. Next up is John George Haig, the vampire killer, vampire of London, but he's mostly known as the acid bath murderer. He was born in 1909. His crimes were committed in London between 1944 and 1949. He had six victims. He was a thief and fraudster who deserted his wife, and he rented a, a basement for his quote-unquote inventions, which had tools, a welding set, and a 40-gallon vat of sulfuric acid. September 9th, 1944, 
He lured his friend Donald McSwan to the basement, killed him with a hammer, or possibly an iron bar, dismembered him, put him in the vat, and put that sludge down a manhole. He told Donald's parents that Donald went to Scotland to avoid military service, and then he would actually go to Scotland to mail letters to them to throw them off. So again, we see a serial killer using letters like H.H. Holmes and Gordon Stewart Northcott. But eventually his parents got suspicious. And since Haig had gambled away the money that he had gotten from Donald, he lured the parents to that basement on July 10th, 1945, bludgeoned them and dissolved their bodies. He forged, their, he forged documents to get their fortune, but he pissed it away by 1948. Archie and Rosalie Henderson were next. He shot them in February, put them in acid, then forged documents to get their estate. February 1949, 69-year-old Olivia Durand Deacon went to him as an inventor so he could market her artificial fingernails. She was also shot, dissolved in the acid, and he only got her jewelry. The cops at this point got suspicious. They searched his lab and they found 28 pounds of human fat bone fragments, dentures, gallstones, and Duran Deacon's purse. He had rubber gloves and an apron in the lab, and the walls were covered in blood. So that is reminiscent of what they found in Chase's apartment. Walls covered in blood. He confessed, but he played up his vampirism. So at this point, he says, when he killed Donald McSwan, after he hit him with a hammer or iron bar, he slashed his throat to drink his blood, in Archie and Rosalie Henderson, he said that he sampled their blood. He claimed that he sliced Olivia Duran Deacon's throat and then he drank a cup of her blood. He said he was a hypochondriac and that drinking blood from a slaughterhouse helped. So at some point he began killing women, cutting them up, eviscerating, cannibalizing them, and it gave him sexual gratification. He got a bloodlust after a dream, and I quote, Walking in a forest of crucifixes, which turned into green trees dripping blood. One tree would assume the shape of a man who held a bowl in which he would collect the blood from one of the trees. He would then offer it to Hegg, but as Hegg tried to take it, the man would move away. Only after Hegg began killing, he said, did the man come within reach, and in his dream, Hegg was able to drink the blood just as he drank the blood of his victims in real life. He said the first murder in 1944 was, was caused because he got an injury to his head where blood dripped into his mouth. And then that night he had a dream that his mouth was full of blood and it revived his taste for it. So he started to kill. They thought maybe he was a multiple personality. And so they said, well, you could plead insanity, his counsel. And so he made the insanity plea. Um, he claimed there were two more murders for blood. But there was obviously controversy over, over this. So they thought maybe he was faking it because it seemed that when, though he said that he got sex, that he originally had gotten sexual pleasure from, from some of them, it was obvious from the victims that he had, he had done it out of greed. He had killed them and gotten their stuff, you know, and he was, he was known to have a gambling problem. He was known for forging. Even before killing, he was known for theft and fraud. So it seemed to them like this was just a plea for him to get out of a heavier sentence. So they ruled that he was guilty and sane. So he was hanged August 1949. He bequeathed his favorite suit and tie to the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds Waxworks. Now, I found that particularly interesting because, as I stated a bit ago, Peter Curtin said he wanted to be in the Chamber of Horrors Waxworks. 
So it's interesting that we have two serial killers and they're from one's from Germany in you know 1930 and one is from London in 1940 so it's basically the same time frame but it's still interesting that they weren't affiliated that this was just a goal of theirs that they wanted to be in this waxworks next up is Anton Costa the Cape Cod vampire although from the research I did he didn't drink blood he took their hearts so I don't know why he was called the Cape Cod Vampire, unless it just didn't pop up in the research that my socially distant assistant and I happened to do. He was born August 2nd, 1944. He had four to eight victims from 1966 to 1969 in California, Massachusetts, and New York. In the 1960s, he showed his freakiness at an early age, such as trying to tie up and smother the neighborhood girls. At 16, he was found in a girl's room and ran away. He came back three days later and tried to drag her away, but was caught. He was married in 1963 and had three kids. In 1966, he said he was ta taking two girls to Pennsylvania on his way to California, but they were never seen again. 1967, he's hiking with a girl and shot her with an arrow, saying it was an accident. She survived. 1968, he shacks up with a girlfriend in California, although he's still married. His girlfriend is not heard from again after dropping her kid off at her parents. He wound up separated in 1968, and in May, he stole instruments and drugs from a doctor's office. Another supposed girlfriend of his, 18-year-old Sydney Monzon, went missing after leaving for a party, and another woman vanishes one week after moving in with him. He shot her, removed her heart, and abused her sexually after death. He then starts sharing drugs with Christine Gallant, or Gallant, who was found dead from an overdose in her bathtub. 1969, his two neighbors in Cape Cod go missing after smoking pot with him. They were, when they were found, they had been shot, their hearts removed when sexual abuse after death. Um, one body was found in a cemetery in eight pieces. Three more bodies were found one and a half miles away with teeth marks and, quote, evidence of necrophilia, along with one of their heads in a plastic bag and one body cut in half at the waist. He got life, but committed suicide by hanging May 12, 1974. He wrote a book while in prison that his friend Carl had killed two of the victims, and he said two of the other ones had OD'd, and that Carl dismembered the bodies. Fritz Harmon was known as the Hanover Vampire, Vampire of Hanover, Werewolf of Hanover, and Butcher of Hanover. He was born October 1879. He had 27 or more victims. From 1918 to 1924, he was arrested June 23, 1924. The age range of the victims was from 10 years old to 22. He was engaged in the year 1900, and he left when she got pregnant. I mention that because John George Haig also left his wife early on. So I thought that was just an interesting similarity, coincidence. He was arrested for pedophilia and served nine months. The time period in which he was active was Germany after World War I. There were plenty of runaways and male sex workers for him to prey on. He hunted at railway stations and offered employment or a place to stay, or he said he was a cop and they had to go with him. He would bite through their necks in a sexual frenzy. He, was, he had a partner, Hans Granz, who was his live-in lover, and together they would sell the clothes of the victims and belongings, and also sell their flesh as meat on the black market. People started to notice that boys were going missing, and it led to rumors of a werewolf in the area. And then a skull was found by kids near a river, and then more was found. There was a sack filled with human bones. They dammed the river, and over 500 body parts were found. 
Harmon was finally arrested when a boy said that he, that Fritz and Hans had molested him before. So they go to the apartment and they found the, some of the missing boy's clothes and apparently bloodstained walls, which is familiar from Chase and his bloodstained walls and Hag with his bloodstained basement. So Fritz gives it up on Hans and then Granz is arrested. And I quote, he referred to his victims as game and described how he grabbed them as they dozed after a large meal or after intense sexual activity. And while sodomizing them, he would chew into their necks until the head was nearly severed. As he tasted their blood, he achieved orgasm. He would then remove the internal organs and cut flesh from the bodies, eat some or store it under his bed and sell the rest as butchered meat. The bones he dumped, usually into the canal. He claimed he hated doing those things, but the obsession was too great for him to overcome. From the words of Fritz Harmon himself, and I quote, I would throw myself on top of those boys and bite through the Adam's apple, throttling them at the same time. Afterwards, I'd make two cuts in the abdomen and put the intestines in a bucket, then soak up the blood and crush the bones until the shoulders broke. Now I could get the heart, lungs, and kidneys and chop them and put them in my bucket. I'd take the flesh off the bones and put it in my wax cloth bag. It would take me five or six trips to take everything and throw it down the toilet or, or into the river. I always hated doing this, but I couldn't help it. My passion was so much stronger than the horror of the cutting and chopping. Another quote, when I would go out of control, I would bite them and suck their necks. He was beheaded April 15th, 1925, and Granz got 12 years. Golombreza Corgier, known as the Vampire of Tehran or the Tehran Vampire, in Iran. He killed nine girls aged 10 to 47 over a period of four months in 1997. He was 28 years old. He would pose as a freelance taxi driver. He would pick up his victims, engage the child lock on the door, find a dark place to drive them, rape them, stab them repeatedly with a knife, cover them with gasoline out in the desert and set them afire. One or two women got free and described him, but what actually got him caught was he was acting suspicious at or near a mall. So he was acting funny. He matched the description the women had given. So they checked his car and they found bloodstains and he confessed. The families of the victims wanted him to be publicly stoned, but they allowed the male relatives of the victims lash him with a heavy leather belt 214 times and then a rope was wrapped around his neck and he was raised into the air via a construction crane and hanged until he died there were about 10,000 to 20,000 spectators it was done publicly to try to deter more action like that but a little bit later someone else was arrested and he said he wanted to be the next Tehran vampire so apparently that didn't really work so that's pretty much all of the vampires we're going to cover in this episode. As you could see, some of them were truly, truly drank blood. Some like John George Haig, I don't know that he actually really drank blood. I, it seems to me like he probably did make that up to try to get the insane defense. But it is still interesting for him to get that detailed. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he did. It's hard, it's hard to know because... Since he dissolved the bodies in acid and stuff and there was no win there were no witnesses, it's hard to know if he would have done it or not. Anton Costa, I don't know that he drank blood. He apparently just took heart. So again, I'm not sure why he was called the Cape Cod Vampire. Fritz Harmon, it seems like he mostly, that he was called a vampire because he would chew through the neck. Although at one point he did say he sucked their necks for their blood. So I can see why he would be called a vampire. And I really don't know why Golem Reza Corje 
was called a vampire because he stabbed them and covered them with gasoline. So unless there is an association with somebody doing something ghoulish is like a vampire, or maybe there is a Iranian vampire that does such things. Maybe they have a different culture, or culture, culture type of vampire. I know that there are different, you know, hold the fuck on. So, you know, uh, what I'm going to do is speaking of different types of vampires and different cultures, I'm going to go through this book that I just happened to get recently called Supernatural Guides, Vampires, Werewolves, and Demons by Usborne Pocketbooks. Todd had seen something online that had reminded him that as a kid, he had this book and that he always loved them. So I looked it up and they are a little hard to find. They're a little um, more expensive than I would care to normally spend money on. But when I saw the pictures of it, it seemed really cool. And because I love Todd, I went ahead and spent the money and got him this book. There are two others. There are Mysterious Powers and Strange Forces and Haunted Houses, Ghosts and Specters. Or there is one compendium called Supernatural World, which is obscenely expensive. Or else I would have just gotten that one because, you know, why not get him in one big collection? But I was not going to spend that much money as much as I love Todd. I contented us both with getting the three separate books, which I think is fun anyway, because then you get the different covers for the books. So it's a short little book. It's fun. So it goes over uh, very basics of what is a vampire. There are legends all over the world. Some of them, which I had not realized, vampires were often thought of to be violent criminals or people who had died suddenly. Anyone who committed suicide or was the victim of a vampire's attack was also thought to be a vampire, which obviously that last thing is pretty common. Often such a person had not had a proper burial and was believed that the spirit, unable to go to heaven or hell, remained active in the corpse. This is why the vampires were known as the undead. The most terrifying stories of the vampires come from Eastern Europe, where Polish vampires, for instance, were said to float in blood-filled coffins. Their Russian relatives were supposed to take blood from a victim's heart. Most vampires, however, preferred to attack at the neck, puncturing the skin with razor-sharp fangs until the blood flowed. The blood preserved the vampire's body so it did not rot in the grave like an ordinary corpse. If a vampire's coffin was dug up and the body looked as if it was asleep rather than dead. Vampires worked at night under the cover of darkness, often creeping into a bedroom while an innocent victim lay sleeping. If the victim was not dreamed completely of blood, the vampire returned the following evening. It goes through people in countries as far apart as Hungary and China believed in vampires. But some vampires were thought to be able to fly or change shape. Most were accused of attacking animals as well as humans. In some areas, vampire a vampire was a bodiless ghost. In others, there were arguments about what animated the vampire corpse, an evil spirit, or the return of its original soul, unable to rest in death. European gypsies believe the vampire left his bones behind when he rose from the grave. He roamed around at night, waking sleepers, breaking things and making terrible noise. He also harmed cattle by riding them at breakneck speed over fields. Some were said to escape from their graves by taking a misty shape. In this form, they could seep through the coffin and six feet of earth that covered them and be solid again, and then become solid... Uh, on ground. Locked doors were no problem. Unless the wise occupant had rubbed garlic around the frame, the vampire would simply assume his misty form and slide underneath. Some vampires were thought to attack fresh corpses. They sometimes even eat the flesh of the dead person. They were also blamed for spreading foul diseases. Some vampires were supposed to be invisible and very spiteful, breaking anything that they could get their hands on and spitting blood all over the place. These vampires beat their victims black and blue, flinging them about in an attempt to get their blood. That's just messy. That's not efficient at all. So real fast, 
Here are some varieties of vampire. The ancient Greeks feared human-like demons that drank blood from the living. The Norse people of Scandinavia believed the dead were alive in their graves, but had become evil and violent. Vampires were not reported in Britain after 1300, but they haunted the rest of Europe much longer. As recently as 1863, there was a vampire epidemic in Bulgaria. It did not end until a witch discovered and destroyed the evil spirit. In Transylvania, now part of central Romania, there is a vampire called the Moroni. It would M-U-R-O-N-Y. It would change from a human into a cat, dog, toad, or any blood suck or any blood sucking insect. This sort of disguise made it very easy to attack the victims. When discovered in human form in the grave, it could be recognized by its long, sharp nails and the fact that blood dripped from his eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Many Central Europeans believed that a soul could leave its body and enter into an animal without any ill effect, even before death. Some people thought it was dangerous to go to sleep thirsty, as a soul would then go out to look for a drink. There's a Russian vampire, known as a... Vizzy? V-I-E-S-Z-C-Y. Gnawed its own hands and feet while in the grave, but at midnight he escaped to attack cattle, seek blood, and ring church bells. The Bulgarian vampire had two forms. For the first 40 days, he learned how to be evil and had a filmy body which gave off bright sparks in the dark. After this, the vampire rose from the grave in his old body, but he now had only one nostril and a long, sharp tongue. I'll have to post these pictures. These pictures are fun. So I heard that Twilight vampires glitter or something. So as soon as I read that this Bulgarian vampire had a filmy body which gave off bright sparks in the dark, I wonder if that's where she got it. I don't know. I haven't read the books, and I don't know that I care to. There are three types of German vampires. Neuntoter, N-E-U-N-T-O-T-E-R, blamed for spreading plague, as it had such an unpleasant smelly body and was covered in sores. In the middle is a Dracul, a vampire corpse that was brought to life by a demon. Then there's a Noxezerer, N-A-C-H-Z-E-H-R-E-R, which had very strange habits. It sat on its tomb, holding the thumb of one hand tightly in the other, always keeping his left eye open, and made loud grunting noises while it devoured, devoured its shroud. So there are different types of vampires in different cultures. So I think that's interesting and something to keep in mind when we see that the Corget was called a vampire, but we don't see the traditional drinking of blood. So maybe that would explain that. I do think it's interesting that none of the serial killers that drank blood specifically said, I did it because I think I'm a vampire. Supposedly, John Crutchley told the woman that he thought he was a vampire. So that's one case. But again, I don't know that he was a serial killer. But it seems like it's mostly from ideas of preserving beauty or youthfulness or as in Richard Chase. And if John George Haig was being truthful, they both felt that they did it because it made them feel better physically. And apparently the thought is common enough that there is actually, like I said, the Renfield symptom and also the Cotard syndrome, which again is you think you're a walking corpse, you're alive but riding inside, or you're missing essential pieces of the body anatomy like blood or organs, which that also sounds like a zombie syndrome. So, but there's apparently enough, enough people that have experienced that, that they made a syndrome based upon it. Peter Curtin, we don't know why he drank the blood. I think he just liked it. And Fritz Harmon, it seemed like it, there certainly was a sexual component to it that he would get excited and either suck their blood or just chew through their Adam's apples. One thought about chewing through the Adam's apple is you would think it would be difficult, but 
in, I believe it was the Serial Killer podcast with the wonderful Norwegian host. I believe it was he that said that since Harmon tended to kill younger boys, their Adam's apple wouldn't have been fully formed yet, so they wouldn't be as hard. They'd be softer, so it would be easier to bite through. In case cynics out there were thinking how diff- that that might be too difficult. I don't know if it would a- you could actually choose someone's head until it was almost off their neck. I don't know that I need to know that information or that I want to know that information. It is kind of interesting, I suppose. I don't really like to picture it. I read that Albert Fish and Jeffrey Dahmer both said they tried drinking blood, but it wasn't their thing. In Cannibal Killers by Moira Martingale, she says, Vampires and werewolves complement each other and that they're both mythical blood and flesh eating creatures which were called upon past centuries to provide colorful descriptions in cases where these particular predatory crimes were committed, providing a mystical explanation to murders so horrible that they could not be countenanced. So that's part of the reason I read about some of the different vampires is you can see that throughout time and throughout several different countries, they each have their own version. You can see why if something atrocious happened that they could attribute it to this mythical creatures because it would be hard to think that a human could do anything like that. And where, you know, where I said earlier that there was a rumor of a werewolf running around when Fritz Harmon was killing boys. I believe that they even said that in Peter Curtin's case, there was also a rumor that there was a werewolf afoot. So again, you can always see as even in the 1900s, you can see where people are still superstitiously blaming supernatural elements instead of being able to wrap their brains around a human doing it. Dr. David Dolphin. (laughs) I mean, dolphins are smart, so he's got to be right, right? In 1985, he's a Canadian chemist that suggested a real condition might have contributed to the legends. Porphyria is a genetic disease and results in the lack of heme, which is produced in the liver to make blood red and help carry hemoglobin. Victims are photosensitive, can be disfigured by sunlight, and go intermittently mad. When exposed to the light, the upper lip recedes and the skin cracks, causing bleeding. Horrific skin lesions on the face cause loss of blood, and teeth become more prominent. The sufferer can crave blood, and a major treatment for some porphyrias is an injection of heme. But in the Middle Ages, this could have been solved by drinking blood, and because of the aversion of sunlight, physicians would also keep sufferers secluded during the day. Garlic contains dialkyl disulfide, which may contribute to the destruction of heme. That could be why it's attributed to vampires. So that's an interesting scientific explanation of why people may have been thought of to be vampires and why there may be some people who wanted, who felt the need to drink blood, which again, although like Richard Chase thought that he needed to drink blood, but when they searched him medically, they didn't find porphyria in him unless that's not, unless they didn't test for that or unless that's not a common thing. I don't really know, but it is an interesting thought that there might be a scientific reason for the legend. Well, that wraps up the, uh, Halloween episode of Murder Lab covering vampiric serial killers. The next one will be a continuation of the Families That Murder Together series. So make sure you stay tuned. Make sure you keep an eye on the Murder Lab Facebook page because every day for the rest of October, I am posting a movie based on a serial killer. So make sure you check that out and add that to your movie list of things to see. I will note that because I posted, it doesn't mean that the movie's amazing. So part of the idea is I wanted to find movies that 
were easily found, preferably free, it, well, if you have a subscription to the service, and that were based on a real serial killer. So I was trying to stay away from super obvious ones like Silence of the Lambs. So, so far, I have, my goal has been to find ones that I hadn't seen and watch them, which is a little more challenging. I have had to rent a few from Amazon. Primarily, they've been on Amazon Prime. Clove Hitch Killer, I recommended. That's on Hulu and Amazon Prime. Starkweather, I recommended, but that was one that I found for like $1.98 on a website, oldies.com. And I'd never heard of it. And for two bucks, I figure even if it's shit, then it's worth, probably worth two bucks, even being crappy. So that one was better than I expected. But anything that I post, I think so far, I think they've been worth watching, even if maybe like Joel, based on Joel Rifkin, it was obviously a lower budget one. Some of the acting wasn't quite as good. Some of the scenes seemed to go on a little bit longer than they needed to. But I could tell that they were really, that they had done research and they were really trying. And I don't want to sound condescending about that. So it was pretty solid. And there's really, from what I've, I've tried to find on Joel Rifkin, there's really not a whole lot out there. So just the fact that someone took the time to make a movie for it that was, you know, pretty decent and, and you could tell that they um, had good intentions, I thought it was worth watching. I believe it is free right now on Amazon Prime. So that was helpful. It's been a nice project because I got, I've, I've gotten to see movies that I haven't seen. I have posted some that I already liked and already knew, specifically like Deranged I had seen a while ago when I was just uh, surfing through Amazon to see what scary movies I could find. And I actually really enjoyed that one. So some of them, and like Arsenic and Old Lace, it's very loosely based on Amy Archer Gilligan, but that one I've loved since I was a kid. So some of these I threw in there because I personally enjoy them, or I can... Uh, appreciate them like Henry Portrait the Serial Killer. I don't know that I'd say I enjoy it. It's difficult to watch because but they do a really good job at capturing the rawness and even though it's not factually accurate mostly, <laughs> I think that they're good at capturing I hate to say the spirit of it, but like I said, the rawness and um and I think Michael Rooker's just an awesome actor. So um, so I think it's worth watching. I don't know that I would personally be able to watch it very many times. I recommend, uh, I don't know if you saw, to watch the, um, if you have Shudder, to watch the Joe Bob Briggs version. It's in his, uh, it's on his drive-in show. I think it's like season two or something. But if you have Shudder, I would watch that version because he gives background information and it's always more interesting with Joe Bob. If you don't have Shudder, but you have Amazon, you can still watch it on there. I'm going to keep posting through October 31st, so there's more to come. I will post some that I've seen. I've post, I actually just bought a couple today that I was lucky to find at Second and Charles. If you haven't been there, check it out. Make sure you watch the Facebook page and Instagram, or both, or either, whichever. I post it on both, so make sure it's um, like Murder Lab Media, I believe is the uh, Instagram and then it's Murder Lab on Facebook. So make sure you keep an eye on those. And make sure you like it and subscribe and all that doodad fun stuff that you should know the drill by now. And you should do it because it's fun. Make sure you check out MurderLabMedia.com for more information. And for lists of my research and other episodes. And the RSS feed is listed if you need the RSS feed for your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Google Play and iTunes. Thank you for entering the lab. I'd like to take a moment to thank my socially distant assistant, 
Igor, for helping me with research and moral support. I'd also like to remind you there is only one Dracula. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, make sure you check out Dipspit, and they can explain. <laughs>